Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host Kevin Appleby and today I've got Christoph Evenitz from who is CFO and managing director of Nuri. Nuri is a blockchain banking company. But as we'll hear as we go on, the interesting thing about uh, this conversation with Christoph is we'll discover that the company is going through an insolvency and winding down. And that's put giving some very interesting work and personal issues and so on that Christoph is dealing with. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to getting into all of that. But Christoph, before we start talking about Nuri and where you are at the moment, what's your background? How did you get to where you are now? Thanks, uh, first of all, uh, for the invite, Kevin. I'm super happy to be on the show. Normally, you always get invited when you're successful and to talk about how did you get there? What can we all learn from success? So that you reached out and we can talk about also yeah, the end of a business cycle, right? And a very interesting time where you do not self-promote yourself, but you speak about the challenges. I'm super happy to take that on today in this show. And yeah, to, to uh, wind a little bit back, um, how did I actually get to Nuri and into the situation we are in right now? I work for LBBW, Germany's fourth largest bank. It's not a huge retail brand. They have a retail arm, but it's not huge. And um, after the financial crisis, I did a lot of restructuring the subsidiary portfolio. I was working in the subsidiary management of the company. And obviously, we sold a lot of uh, subsidiaries or winded them down or uh, carved them out. These were all activities. And obviously, if you're in that position as a project lead, combining HR topics, IT issues, obviously the business side, risk controlling, finance and tax, you become a generalist, right? This is the typical area in which general management plays a huge role, leading the projects, leading people, but obviously also looking a little bit into all of these topics. But at the end, you all need to bind them together in quite complicated M&A documentation. So I worked a lot on also on the legal side and translate the business to legal and legal to business. And then obviously you need to have a real understanding of all of these general issues. And I think that creates a very good foundation for a startup CFO in which you need as well to be hands-on, able to jump in all of these topics and solve them or have like a very good first understanding because you don't have all of the time and a lot of money to go to tax consultants and legal consultants. So the more you already can steer into the right direction and the better, and obviously, on the other hand, you need to be strategic. You need to have like a real understanding of a business as a whole and where you want to bring it, how to build a several year long plan. And I think that is a very, all of that, what I did, I'm very thankful for it, uh, was a very good ground layer. So coming from LBW, doing, doing M&A, I used the opportunity in 2016 when the company, when the banking group invested in the corporate venture and said, come on, we do something in the online payment space. So also for me, absolutely the right time. I'm, I'm a very digital person. I love to play around, fiddle around with new products. And when the group finally said, hey, come on, this fintech thing out there, there is something happening. We need to do something also in the digital space. And they also said, we do, do not want to do it only in-house. We want to create a corporate venture. We need new people. We need an office, which is a different one, which, yes, it had a kicker, you know, like, and like I was uh, setting up the Greenfield plan for that basically stuffed myself as CFO and employee number one. And then we built that um, a little bit out of, out of the house. 
At the end, we had around 30 employees, but quite a large budget because we then re-outsourced like marketing activities to the banking groups, marketing, or we re-outsourced IT to the wider IT partners of the banking group. But obviously, we steered all of the budget. We had even TV campaigns. And so it was a significant case, a very large uh, amount of board attention, let's say, and obviously being incorporated in a lot of corporate politics. And this also was a little bit the reason I saw for myself, this goes into the right direction, becoming entrepreneurial, still under the wider roof of a, of a big shareholder uh, with strong corporate interests. But I saw, okay, where this can lead to. And the keyword definitely is entrepreneurship and the kind of culture you build in a digital environment. And in a, let's, let's just call it tech company because that we wanted it to become that. And I saw what it can be if you go into that direction. And then after two years in the corporate venture, I went um, to, at that time, Bitwala. We rebranded Bitwala to Nuri last year and became CFO of a small team, 15, 20 people already in the case. Also, I would say a little bit of sweet spot for a CFO, three founders already there, but none of them a real CFO. So first non-founder C-suite member, I think that's not unusual. And moved myself to Berlin at that time, became part of the, the Bitwala team. And it actually was exactly hitting what I expected and what I now feel very, very comfortable with. A very entrepreneurial role in a tech company, really focused on culture, on agility, and uh, on an innovative product. Are you an accountant? No, actually not. I was not too bad at university in accountant, but I'm actually an economist. I'm not a business administrator by, by education. I tried like in economics... I tried to do as much as possible business administration because let's face it, that is where your future job most likely will be. But I still loved to have the wider angle and the bigger picture. And obviously, it was very, very quantitative by default economics. I'm always saying I was studying math on case examples from the economy. <laughs> and I always like, if I'm asked what kind of CFO I am, um, I heard an example uh, one point of time that there's three types. There's the rather accounting type. There is, the, let's say, the controller, which very often comes from a consulting background. And then there is the corporate finance CFO. And that is where I'm coming from, right? Like yeah. how to build a wider plan, a lot of business planning and building, modeling, and, and obviously then playing around with funding, a little bit of equity, debt. Can we do something with factoring? you know, like payment schedules, how do we get this thing funded? And, and obviously a little bit of stronger legal aspect and investment agreements, fundraising. These are the directions with which I would say like through the, the whole M&A background, I'm pretty strong. Brilliant, brilliant. So that huge M&A background puts you in a brilliant position for Nuri in 2018, before COVID. What was the original plan? What happened? And why did it go wrong? For several years, it went even better than expected. 2018, when I joined in July, Bitcoin was around 3,500, like not directly in the middle of 18, but it went then down in the middle of 19 to 3,500. And we created a Bitcoin bank account. So the product was a German direct bank account, a neo bank account with a card product from which you directly can buy and sell Bitcoin. That was our original first product we went live with. We later added Ethereum, some earned products, savings plans, et cetera. But like, I think still like the thing which most of our customers use until the end, the most widely is like getting into Bitcoin and out. 
and not needing to send around money all of the time from your bank account to an exchange account. There is definitely not safe. We all definitely, someone's learned that exchanges are not safe, but the German bank account is. And our product was yeah, binding together from a partner bank account with uh, the ability to trade in and out of crypto and the wallet and all in the same app. And that under the roof of the German bank account and the, the whole trust, this is signaling. And, and rightfully, the product is extremely safe in comparison to all of the exchange products we see out there and brokerage products. And when we started um, to think about it, there was still like a bull cycle. But we when we actually went live, there was a huge bear market. Again, in 2019, a lot of people thought Bitcoin would go away. It's like also a very different bear market than to the bear market we are in right now, where everybody's saying, yeah, the prices are not good, but this crypto thing will not go away. And at the time uh, in 2019, people thought maybe the US government may prohibit it completely and forbid it. And obviously, these discussions these days are completely different. So at the beginning, it went actually better. We had very, very tough funding rounds, but we managed them. And so we got the understanding that and also built a lot of resilience at that time to not go under and to stay alive through this really, really challenging fundraising time. And then things became better. The business was doing well, but uh, we raised several rounds, the typical A round, B round. We definitely had product market fit, really good traction, very, very low customer acquisition costs. Um, I think this even like the key KPI, which was outstanding, because in the neobank space uh, in which we are, or like if you say, okay, even crypto trading, customer acquisition costs are immense. There's a lot of companies who charge a lot on the customer side, really, really unfair products on the customers. So what can they do? Obviously, they use all of that money to buy more customers for the same unfair fee structures. And so we, basically in that point, we were able to manage through a really good brand and a very old OG-oriented community. Yeah, And I would say like just a very fair story and a very tangible story. Berlin startup. And then obviously our uh, USP with like the German bank account, we really managed to keep customer acquisition costs very low. We grew throughout time. We added more product features. So, and what happened then? Why did this not continue? In 2021, we decided for a rebrand. Uh, we had some issues with our logo. And when we thought, okay, we need to change the logo anyway. Perhaps it's time to refresh all of it and also adapt it to a different market. Where we came from, crypto was very, very niche, very, um, yeah, very, a little bit nerdy, let's say, definitely, uh, also from yes. the market audience. Um, but 2021 and two, after COVID, people played around being at home. Crypto became a thing, you know, like the GameStar uh, things. And more people actually came into the space. The space widened, the kind of users who were interested. And we thought, let's adapt to that and also adapt our brand, become more mainstream when we, when we already need to touch it anyway. Let's really do it right. And... So we did not only change the logo, but we really went deep. The whole branding, color schemes, fonts, but also the name. Everything needed to change to make us future-proof, to adapt us for this different market and this different audience we believe now will be coming in. And this is a huge effort. And I would say for myself, I definitely underestimated the amount of resources we needed to invest in something like that. I've also done that the first time. Definitely don't want to point this uh, where we are right now to uh, from outside uh, circumstances. We definitely did all of the decisions ourselves. 
Uh, we decided how to treat with our resources. And besides the rebrand, we grew strong. We were in 2021. We were in a, a fast-paced funding year in which valuations were going crazy. A lot of money was allocated. And you also needed to show as a startup that you are not losing ground to your competitors. So we definitely had a high burn, very consciously. We wanted to keep up, speed up with everyone in the space, not lose ground in terms of talent and the ability to scale. Because if you fall behind and you cannot scale, you're also not an interesting target anymore. So all of these things basically made us very proof for a growing market and for a continuation of the environment of 2021. More customers, more mainstream, good, good amount of funding available. Yeah, and then the world changed, beginning of 2022, right? The whole narrative changed. It's now about very profitable business models, not going wide, not scaling too crazy, rather concentrating on core customers, which are really profitable. And we have made ourselves, yeah, basically strategically, we turned the case into a direction which was basically prepared for a completely different environment. Okay, so... The company that is going to succeed in the 2022 world is smaller, is highly profitable, is perhaps not growing quite as fast. Okay. So the market changes. You've clearly had funds in the past. How do funds start running out? So I think what we also saw in 2021 is not only that we increased our cost structure, again, consciously, but coming from a very successful beginning of 2021, Perhaps if you look a little bit back, like crypto prices, very high, which obviously since some of our customers are thinking in Bitcoin terms, so uh, their, their net wealth inside the app has increased with evaluations. So our revenues being always 1% share of each time the customers used the product when they went in or out of crypto. So our revenues were also way higher in the, in the first half of the year. And even if you are like, let's say, a more careful startup CFO, you perhaps calculate with sideways revenues, but it's really, really tough to calculate with, with a decreasing level. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to talk about that. And um, so what happened in the second half of the year already was that we got a gap from our projected revenues and again, the conscious uh, cost structure to uh, in our burn. Then we already burned more than originally expected and ran out of funds faster than expected which increased the need for a fundraise. But now comes the trick and also something I personally definitely underestimated. With the rebrand in May last year, I actually expected buzz around it, like new attention that going out with a fresh new brand would rather drive customer acquisition, drive business. And what we needed to learn is obviously it's very deeply rooted, your brand. It goes through very, very few marketing tools. So the so-called MarTech. And then tracking becomes an issue. And if you cannot track, you cannot allocate customer acquisition funds. You can, like, we have a huge affiliate program. You are basically breaking there. Your referral brokers are working. And SEO is not working as well anymore, definitely. And again, our very low customer acquisition costs were based on very, very good SEO and attraction from that. And all of that was breaking. So we couldn't go out end of 2021 when the time was really great for a fundraise with our fresh new brand, which investors liked, but they also like good KPIs and traction. And we couldn't deliver yet, but we knew we will be able to deliver it as soon as we have solved the whole traction issues through our MarTech. 
We did that. We did that really successfully. And we had a lot of traction, a really good proof for the brand in beginning of 2022 again. So this basically determined the time we went out for fundraising. And that, unfortunately, was the time when the narrative and the market completely turned. But as I said before, timing is definitely an issue of where we are right now. And I think there's a lot of startup podcasts when the founders are asked, hey, what was going really well for you? And then they laugh and say, they were really good timing. Basically, one of the huge success factors. In our case, it was really bad timing. But as I said before, I don't want to push the, the responsibility to the outside. Like we did some decisions based on the knowledge of the time and very consciously did some things which brought us in, in this situation. So very, very successful company, grew very, very quickly. You increased costs quite fast. You rebranded. You took a lot of time to get the new brand in place, so it was recognized, which slowed down the funding round. And at the point the funding round then took place, the market, the funding market had changed and they were looking for different things to what you were. Okay. So I presume, therefore, in that 2022 funding round, you failed to raise any funds. Yeah. And then the typical things you already see very early on. From the interest, which is coming back, uh, oh, this goes into a, a direction we need to uh, think about other, other alternatives, right? And I think also what may be interesting to the listeners, we are in the typical stage between Series B and Series C. And especially in the in German-speaking so-called Dach region, there is really good money for Seed and Series A. There's a lot of established venture capital funds really doing a great job. But we in Germany, we always say that it's really a lack of growth money in the German-speaking market. You basically need to tap into the Anglo-American venture capital markets. That is always a jump and a stretch for each startup. So if you look at the failure rates of startups after each round, between B and C, it's the highest. And this is like the break point. So we knew it would be tough. And we even worked with a corporate finance advisor. First time in our fundraising history, because we obviously saw that things become tougher and we need to potentially speak to some investors who didn't have yet built such a strong relationship. We always did a lot of relationship building, but obviously a new type of investors come in growth stage funding round. And so also in, in line with them, we saw at a certain point, or oh, listen, this may become uh, tough. We still had runway at that time. And then we decided for two things. First of all, looking, are there uh, potential strategic partners out there? So starting a dual track, still trying to, like with the best possible outcome, continuing some of the discussions with some growth investors, which were still were still ongoing. But to basically back ourselves up, we looked for potential partners for an M&A transaction, so-called dual track. And there we were also, again, unlucky with timing. We incorporated in our product a bridge to Celsius, which was a crypto lending firm so basically, uh, their balance sheet is like a bank. So they take deposits from customers yep. and then they lend it out against a shadow bank, just in Bitcoin or like cryptocurrencies and completely unregulated. And we didn't lend out our customers' money, but we uh, brokered our customers to them. So obviously, when this happened, as the partner in Germany who allowed our customers to interact with them, we have been in the news massively, which happened exactly at the time when we were in discussions with reputable partners where we could offer like our innovative business, access to cryptocurrencies, which obviously traditional players, they don't have the in-house resources 
would have been a really great match for a bank who is like looking to the direction of cryptocurrencies, perhaps doesn't even want to have it fully in-house, but with an investment, right? Like getting a first put into the cold water. And then putable like that happens that is driving off interested parties like that from that direction. Yeah. So big lesson there, Christoph. Make sure you don't have things that are going to put you in the news headlines when you're trying to raise funds or yeah. get into partnerships or whatever it is. Yeah, one can really work against the other. So you've got to a point that is reasonably near the end of the line that you're saying that no new funds are coming from anywhere. How many customers do you have at this point? Um, at that point, we had 500,000 subscribed customers, but of those 200,000, which actually went through a German KYC procedure, which is a German video KYC, so you actually speak with an agent. So that is really in the, you know, deeper in the funnel. People need really, really a commitment to actually interact with the product. And these 200,000, let's say from a banking perspective, we call these customers. And actually a, a significant a number of those had funds in the product. So really used it and had either money left on the bank account or still investments on the crypto side. And a very significant number of customers being affected at the time when they heard in the news something you never want to hear that, you know, like just one or the other app, okay, but a banking app, yeah, where you have like investments, that is a product you definitely want to hear something like that. So full understanding from my side that customers were very annoyed and were very confused the first days. Then we obviously received a lot of messages online you stole my money i cannot withdraw yeah because the app technically was just down because too many customers tried at the same time but and there have been like so-called crypto banks in the us for example where the model is not as trustworthy as one around a german bank account where the money still really wasn't there anymore and in our case all of the money of all of our customers was still around was completely ring fenced from anything which affected our financially our insolvency so all of the money on a bank account is in a German bank account. You cannot touch it. All of the cryptocurrencies have either been in a custody with a custody partner or even in non-custodial, so-called non-custodial wallets, which means you have the private key. So no funds even could have been gone. We couldn't have misused it like to fund ourselves or this crazy stuff some of the people in crypto unfortunately are doing. So our customers found out. Obviously, after a first shock, uh, the app started easily to work again. Everybody could withdraw. And until today, as we speak, customers can withdraw their funds until end of December 22. The product is up and running and we remind customers even all of the time, please withdraw your funds as long as we provide the app to you. Um, but this uh, this time is running out now. Okay. So customers haven't lost anything. They've simply had to withdraw funds, possibly at a time where Bitcoin has dropped in value and possibly don't want to make transactions to cash in Bitcoin back into harder currencies, but they haven't lost anything through your insolvency. But presumably you've had to keep going long enough to allow that easy access to funds and be, allow them to withdraw. So how have you managed to make sure that there's still a platform there as it's running out of funds? Yeah, and I think this is, as I said before, resilience always was in the DNA of Bitwala Nanuri. 
We have had so tough times all of the time in 2018 and 19 when the market really was dead and everybody didn't believe in what we are doing. So I said before, like we basically built an armor of resilience around ourselves. So when the actual insolvency was hitting, when we saw there will not be the, the white knight, the, the growth investor who even press for low valuation will bring us to the next stage. When we saw, okay, in an M&A process with the unfortunate news we currently have uh, in the space, nobody will acquire us and we need to file for insolvency. We as the management make these decisions. We've, we were well prepared. We spoke even before the date uh, where you need to file and prepared ourselves with an insolvency consultant and obviously all aligned with our shareholders that this now might be the best way to move forward, which uh, in Germany as a in a, in a limited company, as a managing director, you also need to be a little bit on the safe side for your personal liabilities. And so with this external consultant with a lot of insolvency experience, we actually timed it also very right. And we timed the, and we created documentation with our shareholders, right? That we are not filing too early so that our shareholders are losing something. We're not filing too late that our creditors are losing something. So very important to find that spot and to make that sure for yourself. Then drafting all of the insolvency the templates to the insolvency court, obviously a 30 page thing, as you can expect. And I would argue this is the toughest time for you as a little bit like an adopted co-founder in the business, right? Like also my personal incentivization relied on the success of the business. And so there's the point of no return. You sent this insolvency application to the court. And this was for myself the toughest time to basically digest what's happening to us now. That is not going to continue in any form of success. We will wind this down. But again, like the resilience uh, we have built up over the years was very well um, preparation. But where I actually want to go with this is we need also a team, right? Like we need other people who have not been so closely on the fundraising side and basically observed over months where this might be heading. So our wider team was very surprised, negatively surprised. And I 120% feel with them about the shock they had when they heard what's happening now and the uncertainty about their salary. Can they pay their rent? What happens if they migrated to Germany? All of these things, very, very tough for our wider team. And we also the team needed time, obviously time to digest it. Over like the first months after we filed for insolvency, the insolvency administrator comes in, they try to restructure the business. We are burning too much cash. We, are, we cannot turn it to profitability. So it was clear we need to go into a wind down direction. And what we were able to achieve then was to find a small, like in peak times, we had a team of 230 people. We then, uh, beginning of the year, and we saw we need to uh, decrease our cost structure. We had like a first layoff phase. Uh, when we filed for insolvency, it was around 130, 140. And now we are 25. So we found a very engaged wind-down team in this group throughout the insolvency procedure, which, in my opinion, does an amazing job. They also have this attitude of resilience on the one side to say, okay, I know this is only now a, a very temporary thing until the end of December, but this still has a purpose. And they are really very engaged and very solution-driven to make it as best as possible for our customers, which are still around and still need help. We still have customer tickets. We cannot answer them as fast as we want, but we still answer them with this limited team. 
well, the app needs to run. And 99% uptime we still have with a very, very small team because people stand very closely together now. We have found a new way of being engaged with each other and you no, know, like typically white companies, like a little bit looser, everything. Now people lean stronger uh, on each other again, communicate stronger with each other. It's a very interesting time. Christoph, how have you created that? To my mind, you're in a difficult position like that. You've got to lose people. You want to keep a core team of very good people, but isn't it the fact that the the best people in your team will be the ones that find it easiest to leave, easiest to find another position. How do you get the right people in that team as you wind down? How do you motivate them? How yeah. do you persuade them to stay till the end? Yeah, basically two questions. So first of all, I think where is this all coming from that we're even in a position that the team is doing so, right? This is, we always have had a really, really strong culture. And yes, every startup is saying that about themselves, but we really get a lot of comments from the outside and people in Berlin. Have we heard that Nuremberg has a really strong culture? And the rumor has it on in the Berlin ecosystem that we have a, a strong culture. And hopefully we have, because we really invested a lot from the management side to build on our values, to enforce our management principle throughout the company and build on that and really, really hiring strongly on culture and Resilience was not originally one of our like formulated values, but it has become one of our DNA pieces. And I would argue then, obviously, if the team has that, you hire appropriately. So the wider team we had already was like very much built on these things, like going through tough times. So the team we have built already was in a very, very good shape to tackle a challenge like this. And then, yes. Some good people basically started to look for something new when the original insolvency news broke. But the really good people also take their time to find the right thing for themselves. And to have the opportunity to now stay a little bit longer with us and have a purpose with that and then start something new. You know, like if you're really good, people wait for you until January. They don't need you to start in October so the people we, we still have in the wind-down team, most of them have a really, really good follow-up position already. And some perhaps even want to first slow down and look for the right opportunity for themselves. So we really could work with some people which are not the ones you would have expected, that only like the underperformers, which do not find any other opportunities stay around. That actually didn't happen. Because I would say like in the tech environment, the really talented people they typically do not need immediately to jump on the next thing or they don't want so. And then this gives you an opportunity. If you speak in the right way with them, if you give them a purpose again and not say, yeah, you need to clean up the office and uh, put all of the documentation in folders and stuff, it, obviously. But if you give them the purpose and say, hey, we can do this right for the customer, as seamless as any possible for the customer, that basically drives the talented tech people to say, oh, I, I solve a problem here. And that gives me also like ethically uh, something back. And it gives you from one of the things which is driving me like reputationally and what we see in our, like we have a telegram group of our customers that some people are there, right? Hey, wait a second. You guys are still around. Like even make changes in the product these days. We create new download possibilities of transactions so that our customers, when we shut down the app, 
are best possible prepared for anything coming in the future, tax or whatever. So we're even shipping new things. And we have customers saying, oh, great, is that you're still there? You still solve problems for me. And you put your time into that. And you know, you see already how I talk about it, how much that gives you back. Yeah. I can see that you're still yourself really passionately involved in the product, even though you're effectively at the end of the road. So end of December, Christoph, is that the end of this employment for you as well? Yes, indeed. End of December, we will basically ramp down also our small wind down team. Obviously, as a managing director of German limited company, I will still register it and the mandate stays, but my working engagement uh, discontinues and the insolvency administrator and their restructuring firm, they will take over all of the accounts, you know, and we'll hand over the documentation, all of the left devices, etc. And until then, we will manage that. And then I will be there. I will not be gone if the insolvency administrator, customer, anybody who is basically then like with the, again, the, the limited company stays uh, in the commercial register for perhaps two more years. I will be still there to answer any question and everything about the past. But from January onwards, I have a lot of free time <laughs> yeah. and need to need to think about it, what I do with my newly found free availability and, and resources. But I'm pretty sure there will be good opportunities. I'm sure there will be. But Christoph, we've talked about the company. We've talked about the wind down team. We've talked about retaining the right people. We've talked about making sure the customers are in a good place. But on you personally, over this period of time, there must have been enormous pressure. You're here, you're smiling, you're communicating in a fantastic way, looking generally happy. How have you preserved your own mental state? I can do all of that only because it's now some months down the line. We filed in August. As a CFO, you obviously see it most coming, perhaps, in the management team. Then you write for two weeks, you write this insolvency application, which is the truth about your business, all of the assets, liabilities, the money you own, the invoices you have pushed forward. And I tell you, this is the unfunny part. So when you're running out of cash, you're starting to stretch invoices, stretch your business partners. You know that some of these are freelancers. They rely perhaps on the engagement with you. This is really not cool. I really feel for the people who needed to wait on money and we told them, yeah, yeah, we will pay next week. And we only wait for a payment. And like, we really expected that we will be able to perhaps bring an internal funding together until the last day. You will still have some hopes, but you also in a CFO position, you digest very, very well what could happen if this goes south and if it becomes more probable. So for me, the two toughest things have been my team, so the finance team, which also needed to obviously deal with yeah the, our vendors coming in. And they sometimes needed to tell them stuff we didn't really 100% believe in. And I needed to tell them to do that. And I said, hey, if something, you don't want to have these conversations, just route these people directly to me. And then I will tell them that money is coming later and stuff. So this is also the team. And seeing also my finance teams, uh, stress with the situation that was one of the, the biggest burdens for myself and the second obviously people which actually didn't pay and which lose out now uh, and Nuri has not been the responsible business partner I wanted it to be and again these all of these things we digested throughout some months um, in the middle of the year and 
it looks like that I'm a kind of a character of a person who has a lot of resilience. I think this word appears a lot in this podcast, and I really am. I can really turn the page quite quickly, digest things quite quickly, also other things in life. I'm a very strong optimist, so I can, things which are not really well, I can push them aside quite fast, basically after I have chewed them through. And I would say it's a, it's a big trait to have this resilience and it provides the mental and physical armor for your health you need in a year like this. I would say if I wouldn't have had this for myself this year, this would have been really a year also on my personal health, which would have dragged me in a very dark place. And right now I can only sit here uh, with you and have this conversation because I think I digest fast and I have this armor built up already. And I think this year only have made me stronger. But I'm guessing not having anywhere immediately to go in January and some time on your hands is going to be really good to completely recharge, completely refresh, ready for the next challenge. It's absolutely. So one of the things, obviously, I ask myself is I'm super engaged and passionate so about business models and teams. So I would say I'm definitely built for an entrepreneurial role in something to build it up. And obviously, this is a process over years. I'm not the typical consulting kind of person doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, some months that project, you know, I'm too sold on something, passionate about something. But I ask myself, do I really need to jump into something like that immediately? Or do I want to give myself a little bit more time to search for the right thing I want to be sold for some years on? So that is kind of what I'm evaluating for myself and with the things which are coming in right now, when to really engage with something which is a longer process and a longer engagement again. And fortunately, some people are approaching me for, hey, can I share my knowledge, even like some inbound interest for a little bit of coaching. And that's, again, it's nothing I want to do on a, over a longer period of time, but it definitely will keep me busy enough. So obviously, if I would be too unbusy, I think also not the kind of person who is then happy. And it's also a little bit of, you know, purpose and something that I do over time. I, and now travel around for, for some months and do nothing. That's not the yeah. kind of person I am. Yeah. So one of the reasons I was really keen to have you as a guest on the, the podcast, Christoph, was just knowing that there are so many fintech businesses that have started over the last five years and we're going into a recession. It strikes me that you're not going to be the only one in this insolvency situation. And there could well be other finance leaders, other CFOs listening to this and thinking, oh, this could be me in six months' time, 12 months' time. What words of advice would you have for anybody who's listening at the moment and maybe thinking that, oh, this could be me? I think the most important one, as much we need to be optimistic on funding until the last day, in the industry we are, and there's always this one story of the founder who a day before they wanted to file for insolvency, the white knight jumped around the corner, you know, or like this M&A transaction went through. Yes, these stories are there, but the next years will be really, really tough. And I would tell you, I had actually one of colleagues in the field actually approached me today with like a very limited runway. How can I perhaps reduce my staff? What are the timelines to, to keep in mind? Timelines are here really important. So Early enough, think about it. If you might really run against the wall and no funding at all will be available and you cannot restructure the business anymore, 
also early enough engage with the legal necessities and your personal liabilities. Really think about it. Do not push it aside. Not only business first. Sometimes also you need to make sure for yourself what is your position and bring someone on board. If somebody listens to this and want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, also being in the same position, going into that direction, hey, feel free. I'm also happy to share in our fellow CFO what we learn, what you can do still, and especially like in the German environment where you need to be careful about yourself. Bring an insolvency consultant in, draft your application right, really make sure with your team that you do not forget things, social security, liabilities in Germany, for example, super important to make it right. Look everywhere so that this doesn't turn against you at a later stage and invest the right amount of time also on this unwanted outcome, even if you still believe in a wanted outcome and the white knight. That is fantastic advice, Christoph. So, Christoph, thank you for being this week's guest on the Gross CFO Show. Thanks, Kevin.